After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithless, faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread up my hands to the Lord my God, saying, O oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame, as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, favour has been shown by the Lord our God, to leave us a remnant, and to give us a secure hold within his holy place, that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, The land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanliness. Therefore do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land, and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us, less than our iniquities deserved, and has given us such a remnant as this. Shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us, so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped, as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. A street preacher was once standing in the plaza at a university, answering questions about Christianity that any student could think of. One day, while preaching the good news of the gospel, a student asked him this question. What will happen if someone believes in Jesus, 
but continues to live a sinful lifestyle. Maybe they continue drinking excessively. Maybe they smoke marijuana. Maybe they live a sexually promiscuous lifestyle. Will that person go to hell if they claim they have, that they have faith in Christ, but their life stands in complete opposition to that fact? The preacher then looks at the student and explains this to her. He says, if I were to tell you today that I wanted to be your friend, 20 years from now, you would look back at this and probably think that I was messing with you. If I said that I really wanted to be your friend and then I stole your watch, you would probably look back at this and know that I didn't actually want to be your friend and that I was messing with you. If I say that I really wanted to be your friend, it will be shown in my actions. Similarly, if I say to Jesus, I trust in you, but I don't want anything to do with you, I don't want to listen to what you have to say, then the evidence is that I don't believe in him. But as you and I develop a friendship, maybe I'm going to get angry at some point and call you a dirty name. That's not a statement that I don't really want to be your friend. That's a statement that I have a problem with my temper. So I'll turn back to you and say, I'm really sorry. Will you please forgive me? Well, the same thing is true with being a Christian. I put my faith in Jesus, but I still sin. But the point is that I hate my sin and I turn to Jesus for forgiveness and he forgives me. We all make mistakes in this life. There are many times where we will upset the people that we love the most, all because we decided to care for ourselves instead of caring for them. This means that we then need to apologize for the things that we have done. But the thing is, if our apology is half-hearted and insincere, then the problem doesn't go away. If we are really sorry, our actions will show it because sorry isn't just a word, but it is an action as well. If we have hurt the ones that we love most here in this world, then we know that nobody is safe. Not even the God of the universe is safe from us wronging him because we have all sinned. Wronging God is what we commonly know as sin, and as the Bible tells us, the wages or the consequences of sin is death. But our God is gracious to us in the fact that he forgives his people who repent of their sins and come to faith in Jesus Christ. So just like with our loved ones, if we are going to confess our wrongdoing to our God, then we need to be sure that we are doing it correctly because it is cosmically more important to us because this affects our eternal destiny. Tonight then, we will be looking and studying the topic of true repentance. If we are going to be right again before our God, we should be looking at what the scripture has to say about this topic. And Ezra 9 stands for us as a great example of what true repentance should look like. So in our study, we are going to look at three 
essential parts of true repentance, each connecting to each other like a chain, meaning that they are all essential to true repentance. We will see true repentance produces three things. True repentance produces lament over sin. True repentance produces confession of sin. And true repentance produces forgiveness of sin. But before we dive into today's text, I do want to give a very brief clarification about Ezra 9. In this text, we see Ezra grieve the fact that Israel has intermarried with other nations around them. I want to be explicitly clear for us tonight that this text is not saying that interracial marriage is a sin. There are racist people in this world who will read this text and use it to justify their hate towards interracial couples. Hear me clearly when I say that reading this text in this way is not only wrong, but is dishonoring to our God. I hope to unpack this more as we go through, but I wanna make sure that we understand together right before we even dive in that interracial marriage is not a sin. With that clarification sorted out, let's jump together into Ezra 9 where we will see our first point that true repentance produces lament over sin. Read with me again the first four verses of Ezra 9. It says, after these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands with their abominations. From the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. You see, about four months have passed since we were last in, uh, since the events of Ezra 7 and 8, which we looked at the last time we were studying this book together, meaning that Ezra and the second wave of returning exiles were finally settling back into the land. Remember from our last study that Ezra was sent by King Artaxerxes, who was king of Persia at that time, to head back to Israel to set up a justice system in the nation on behalf of the king. Well, in the beginning of Ezra 9, we run into the first problem that Ezra faces while upholding the law in the midst of this nation. The officials approach Ezra and tell him the bad news that people have intermarried with the surrounding nations. There are two major questions that we need to be asking when we hear this story. Why is this intermarriage a sin and why was it so prominent? The reason that Israel intermarrying with the surrounding nations is a sin, as I said earlier, earlier, has nothing to do with ethnic distinctions or racism. We can state this factually because of the many stories that we have throughout the course of the Old Testament where people from other ethnic groups join into the covenant community. 
probably the most prominent one that you will be familiar with, who we actually studied about six to seven months ago, was that of Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite. She did not belong to Israel, but married into Israel. And as soon as her husband died and she could have returned back to Moab, she decided instead to go to Israel because she had dedicated herself to serving God. That meant that she was able to become part of the nation and even secure for herself a spot in the lineage of Jesus. Claiming then that all intermarriage is a sin is absolutely contradictory to scripture. The reason why this particular instance of intermarriage is a sin is because when the Jews at this time would intermarry with the other nations, they would be welcoming in idols into their households, blatantly disobeying what God had commanded of them. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 3 through 4, God commands this. He says, You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. The Jews sin here in Ezra 9 that has nothing to do with interracial marriage but has to do with the failure to worship God alone. But then the question remains, why is this sin so prominent at this time? It was really because of the failures of the leaders here in Israel. Verse two specifically calls out the officials and the chief men because of their faithlessness in this situation. Because the leaders decided to be lax, because they decided to ignore the word of God That meant that people living under them could adopt similar mindsets and ignore the severity of the consequences of sin. Then the sin that was creeping at the door, which was waiting for the right moment to strike, could hit them exactly when they least suspected it. Sin would then steer the entire nation away from the grace of God because the leaders And then in turn, the people failed to remain vigilant in the fight against sin. When Ezra hears this news, we see one of the most visceral reactions to sin in all of scripture. Ezra tears his garment and his cloak from his body, ripping them in two. You see, this action of tearing your garment was an ancient custom to display that you were suffering through immense grief and anguish. But Ezra doesn't simply just tear his clothes. He even tears out hair from his own head and beard because he is so distraught by the sin that this nation is committing. Ezra was meant to be upholding the law in the land. And here he is confronted with this great sinfulness of the nation. And then he is hit with an even greater sorrow. After mourning this sin with other godly men and women, Ezra turns to God in lament. He says this in verses six and seven of Ezra chapter nine. He says, oh my God, I am ashamed and I blush to lift my face to you. My God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt and for our iniquities 
We, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. You see, Ezra's lament can't be helped but described as nothing short of gut-wrenching. This language, this very intense language that he uses is meant to highlight the intensity of the feelings that he is experiencing because of the nation's sin. But that raises for us another question. Why is Ezra in such pain and such sorrow if he isn't even the one involved in this sin personally? The answer to that question lies in how we should be viewing sin both internally inside of us personally and externally as we view sin in this world. As people of God, when we are saved, when we are brought into that intimate union with Christ, we are then able to partake in the death that Christ died and then in turn be given new life in Christ. But that's not the only thing we gain at the moment of salvation. In our union with Christ, we are commanded to love the things that God loves and hate the things that God hates God loves righteousness and hates sin. So we then are also called to love righteousness and hate sin in the same way. Ezra then, as one of God's people, sees the sin that the nation is committing and cannot help but lament. He knows that this sin is detestable in the sight of God. So he cannot help but be ashamed of this sin. Even though he is not the one who has broken God's law in this way, he still feels this immense grief, this weight of sin, because the covenant community is so near and dear to his own heart. He partakes in a corporate lament and invites other people to participate in that same lament. You see, the corporate lament over sin displays to the public the seriousness of sin and the need for repentance and reconciliation with God. In Ezra's public display, he is saying to Israel as one of their own leaders that they are in desperate need of repentance before God. If one person, think of this, if one person were to tell you that you have done something wrong, you are more likely to brush it off and to forget about it. But if a whole community, if the leadership of an entire community comes to you and tells you that you have done something wrong, you are more likely to take it seriously. That is why this corporate lament that we see here happening in Israel is so important. Ezra's lament over his sin serves then as a great example about how we should be reacting to the sin in the world, both individually and as a corporate body. Under no circumstances should we be denying or belittling the effects of sin, but instead we should recognize that sin displeases God and should in turn displease us as well. While Ezra laments what is happening in the nation, he is displaying to sinners the weight of the consequences behind their action inviting these sinners to then participate in this grief and help them recognize their need for repentance 
corporate lament over sin invites individuals to participate in lamenting over their own sin. Let me say that again. Corporate lament over sin invites individuals to participate in lamenting over their own sin. We then as believers today must honestly assess the consequences of sin in this world, both on a corporate and an individual level. As we look at the state of Western culture, moving further and further away from God with each passing day, we need to be lamenting as a church the godlessness and the wickedness that runs rampant. We should, be, we should lament the destruction of Christian ethics in our society. We should be sorrowful over the breakdown of marriage in the family unit. We should speak out against murders of children in the womb. When we publicly lament these tragedies, we invite others in this world to realize that right now things aren't how they are supposed to be. We are showing them that sin is running rampant, that unrighteousness is ruling, and that all of these things will have serious consequences. This also means we need to be assessing sin more honestly in our own lives as well. Sin is a dastardly force trying to, trying to take away every inch of your soul that it can grasp. As John Owen famously wrote, you need to be killing sin or it will be killing you. Sorrow and lament over your own sin. Then serve as an indicator if you are taking this fight seriously. Does your sin move you to lament like it did Ezra here in Ezra 9? Or do you just brush it off to be forgotten about? If, you are going to, if we are going to be truly repentant before the Lord... You cannot take away the grief and the weight of sin that produces. That is Christ's job and not your own, both in our personal lives and in this world around us. Remember, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says these famous words. He said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You see, when thinking then about the process of repentance. Lamenting over sin is our essential starting point. And the next step, which is our second heading for tonight, is that true repentance produces a confession of sin. Look with me at verses eight through 12. Ezra is speaking here. He says, but now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery for we are slaves. Yet our God has not forsaken us in slavery but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you command by your servants, the prophets, saying, the land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands with their abominations that have filled it from, their, from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, 
Do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it, leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. After lamenting over the sin of the nation, Ezra moves then into the second link of the chain of true repentance. Once someone has recognized the severity of the situation involving sin and has truly grieved over it, the next immediate step should be to come before the Lord and confess our sin to our gracious God. The sorrow and lament that we experience over sin was never meant to weigh us down and drag us to the bottom of the ocean. Instead, it is a burden that we are meant to bring before our God and leave at the foot of his throne, asking for his forgiveness. In his confession of sin, Ezra began with confessing his sorrow over the sin to the Lord that we see in verses six and seven. But in verses eight and nine, we see Ezra recall the grace that God has, has given to the nation in the past. Ezra acknowledges that because of God's mercy, the nation still exists as a remnant, having their eyes brightened and having received God's steadfast love by, by receiving grace through the kings of Persia, having dealt with them so graciously. Through God's mercy alone, they are back in the land repairing the city that was destroyed, reestablishing the glory of the temple and receiving protection from God alone. But yet, even though God has been gracious to them in the past, the nation has still messed up. In verses 10 through 12, we see Ezra list off the commandment that they've so clearly broken and admit that the nation is entirely at fault for committing this sin. The fallible human nature has made the nation descend once again into the sin that the previous generation was sent into exile for. Even though the consequences for them was severe, it was brutal, temptation was still able to make it to this new generation and they fell again into sin. This sin Ezra confesses before the Lord on behalf of the nation. He confesses looking for forgiveness from them all, which is what is so different and why the course of the nation from this point will go so differently than the previous generation. Again, we must address here kind of the corporate and personal confession that Ezra is displaying here. Just like with sorrow over sin, Ezra's public confession of sin before the people stands as an example of how the nation should be responding. Once they have lamented over their mistakes, they should come before the Lord in confession, making true repentance. As one person confesses their sin in the gathering, the people are able to confess their sins alongside that person, meaning that their confession is both corporate and personal. But what does that actually look like? What does that look like here at Hoylake Evangelical Church? That looks like what happens during our pastoral prayer. 
In the longer prayer that we have here in the service, you will usually hear whoever is praying, pray about sins that have been committed in their life and asking God for forgiveness. You see, this public confession, although it is prayed out loud by one person, is meant for everybody there in the congregation at that time, that they may in turn also confess their sins before God. Once this then becomes personal to you, once this becomes normal as a participant of the service, we hope that your personal prayer then will be marked by that same confession so that you might be in right standing before our God. We do this with the goal that you may live constantly in an attitude of repentance. Although salvation has been offered to us through Jesus, and although those who are saved have been given his righteousness, we still live in a sinful world and have the tendency to sin against our God. Though the Holy Spirit has given us this power to overcome sin, that does not mean that we are entirely free from sin's effects. We will slip up, and we will slip up often. But when, but what you do when you eventually fail is incredibly important. So my question for you tonight then is this. Are you living with an attitude of repentance? How often are you coming before our God with an attitude of repentance? Is it only when you do something bad like screaming at your spouse or at your children or out of another family member? Or is it only when, or is it only when you do something small like telling a little white lie to get out of trouble? When you live with an attitude of repentance, you are able to see more clearly just how much you need God, which makes his grace and mercy all the sweeter. When you live in an attitude of repentance, any mistake that you make will immediately draw you to the loving arms of our heavenly Father. That is because, as as our third heading says, true repentance grants forgiveness of sins, which we see here in verses 13 through 15. Continuing on these last three verses, Ezra continues. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved, and having given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? O Lord, The God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. Ezra finishes his repentant plea before the Lord looking for God's mercy. You see, in these verses, we see Ezra recognize that if the nation were to continue on in this sin, that they would justly receive punishment. But yet, God has still remained merciful to them. 
The sin that they have committed in the past has deserved a harsher punishment. Yet the remnant of Israel still still stands as a testimony to the mercy of God. Ezra finishes his plea by doing the only thing that he can think to do in that situation. Throwing himself before the throne of grace and pleading for God's mercy. Expecting and hoping that God will be gracious to them. You see, when we truly repent of our sins, when we feel the full weight of the grief that sin produces in us, and then we openly confess them to our God, we, we can know, for, we can assuredly know that his grace is waiting for us on the other side of repentance. It is easily one of the greatest things about being in a relationship with our God. Even when we mess up, if you come to our God, if you come before him and truly repent, then you will experience God's mercy all the days of your life. It doesn't matter if it's your first time repenting or if it's your millionth time. Our God is merciful. Jesus has died on the cross for your sins meaning that the punishment, that consequence of sin, that awful death that you deserved was paid by Christ. Again, as John Owen writes, he says, Jesus' blood is the great sovereign remedy for our sin-sick souls. Live in this belief and you will die a conqueror. Truly, you will live to see your lust dead at the feet through the good providence of God. However, when we think about God's mercy, we need to be careful not to fall into one of two mistakes. The first mistake that we could fall into when thinking about God's mercy is taking a legalist approach, meaning that we live in fear of God for every time we sin. We can start to believe that grace will not be given to us because we have called on God's grace too many times. But let me tell you tonight that that is a lie for God's mercy is greater than all of our sins. If you sin, come before the Lord in repentance immediately and seek his forgiveness. If you were to find moldy food in your fridge, you're not going to leave it there to continue watching the mold grow. You're going to throw it away. So if you see sin in your life, come before the Lord in repentance. The second mistake that we, could, that we would fall into, that we could fall into regarding God's mercy is what we know as antinomianism, meaning that, God, meaning that we know God will give us mercy, so we give up on fighting sin. If we live in an, with an attitude that doesn't fear the consequence, then we will continue on in sin and our repentance will not be genuine. As the Apostle Paul writes, shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. We shouldn't downplay the seriousness of sin and pretend like God's grace is cheap. God's grace is not like a vending machine being truly and purely transactional. 
That is not true at all. God's grace cost the Son of God his life. So we shouldn't take that grace lightly. What should be important for us as believers is to remember that God's grace is given to us freely, but it is not free. God's mercy comes to us through our relationship with Christ, which is just about as intimate as any relationship could get. We don't use the people that we love for purely transactional reasons, nor are we afraid of interacting with those people that we truly love. But instead, God's mercy is given to us based on our intimate relationship with him. So we should try and treasure this mercy as the greatest gift that we could have ever received. So my final instruction to you all, whether you call yourself a Christian or not, is this. Come before the Lord in true repentance. Come into a loving relationship with him by falling on your knees and repenting of your sins. Feel the weight of your sin and then feel it drop to the foot of the throne of grace that our God sits upon. God is merciful and will forgive you of your sins if you truly repent before him. Then, once you have done that, continue living in that attitude of repentance, letting the grace and mercy of God be a comfort to you all the days of your life. Amen. Let's pray.